everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is the week of November 20th. My goodness, it is coming so quick. Um, This week we'll have kind of our normal, uh, typical service, and the next week, November 27th, join us for Love Feast, putting up Christmas decorations, prepping for Advent time. Uh, We'd love to see if you're able to make it, even if it's just for part of it, it would be awesome to see you. Uh, But to bring it back to this week, uh, we will be reading from a different part of the lectionary. Every week, we usually read off of the lectionary, um, utilizing the gospel text as our guide. And this is how we move through Matthew, Mark, and Luke on rotation. And we're already getting to the end of the year, which, again, still blows my mind. Um, I'm looking forward to doing some recap with Ryan and the rest of y'all about what has taken place this year. We'll have a couple different forms of of recapping and just reminding ourselves how much we have gone through uh, together this year. But um, usually there are also other texts that are provided, um, including a passage from the Psalms in the Old Testament. And as I was looking at this week's text, one caught my eye of Psalm 46. And that might sound familiar to you because our meditation, Be still and know that I am God, comes from the first part of Psalm 46, verse 10. And so I thought I would take this week to explore the background on this meditation and the text that it comes from, uh, give ourselves, of course, a little more context and maybe some different ways to think about it. Um, and a good reminder um, of what it means to be still, which I think is the hardest to do for some of us during the holiday season when it feels like a lot has to get done or you have to perform in a certain way or you have to craft the holidays in a certain way to meet certain expectations. Um, And that there are usually these feelings of, well, the holidays are supposed to feel like fill in the blank. Um, And so the object of being still uh, is, of course, very uh, cross, uh, different from what is usually the expectation. Sorry, my brain um, is still catching up to me today after uh, a work day. But all of that to say, I'll read our text for us here, coming from Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, Selah. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. 
I'm exalted among the nations. I'm exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. The word of God. So when I read through this passage, um, one, you probably heard a couple of pauses. Um, that is coming from that word selah, to pause. Uh, usually it was used um, as a musical intonation. So as you read through the Psalms, often um, it's just a good reminder that these were meant to be sung. Uh, they have musical intonations that are present, um, usually even in the verbiage that's used. And of course, a couple of questions come to mind that are inherently rhetorical, but about the content of the psalm or song. How do we find stillness in a world filled with tragedy? And how do we even begin to know God? And why does this passage sound familiar to our own context of kingdoms totter, nations are in uproar? What is it truly calling us to do? So with that, of course, there's a few pieces uh, that I want to lift up and explore together, especially in our conversation on Sunday. Um, there are several pieces of language within this passage that I think are important to name, um, in addition to the contextual pieces. Now, as you read through this passage, um, it talks about the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, God um, themselves. There are several names that are used for God throughout this passage, um, and all are using kind of different language to describe the same God, the same divine, and yet different aspects. And the rest of this passage brings us back to this idea that in the midst of all um, that kind of threatens our norm or threatens us or threatens the culture that has been set before us, God is also there. So as you read through this passage again, um, I think a couple of things that are incredibly interesting. It talks about there is a ri river whose streams make glad the city of God um, that that rushes through. Now, again, we have to to name that there was a couple of uh, pieces. One, water, of course, has been used throughout the Bible often to denote. Um, kind of a, a season or a place of chaos. Um, water can be both beautiful and it can also cause great wreckage. Um, water can mean life, it can mean the source, and it can also mean desolation or destruction. It depends on if you're talking about um, water that we can drink, uh, a storm that causes damage. And so even within this passage, there are two different of um, aspects of water, the waters that roar and foam that we shouldn't fear, but also this river whose streams make glad the city of God. Uh, it talks about God being in the midst of all of these things. It also uses this word desolation, like the Lord has brought desolation on the earth. But these desolations in the next verse say that these are actually making war cease. He breaks the bow over his knee, shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus names God as a peacemaker who practices this universal, nonviolent love towards creation. Um, and this image of a nonviolent God changes everything. I think this passage says something similar, even if it's hard to decipher at first. Um, this passage is not about promising that God is on one side. It promises that God is with us. And, of course, contrary to what we often think or are told, this means not arming ourselves, uh, but often, more often than not, disarming ourselves. Like I said, God's desolations, it turns out, means nothing short of the destruction of the implements of war and the abolition of war itself. I think to know that God is with us means that we're not supposed to wage war, but the courage instead to wage peace. And this God of peace, as we have explored throughout many of our conversations, is found on the margins, not in the center, on the edge and not in the axis of power, often appearing at the bottom, not at the top, right? The least of these, not the first. And so if we want to see God, if we want to see work for peace, more often than not, we have to go to the margins and the edges, and there we will find God. In that process, we often learn something about faith, ourselves, fear and love, peacemaking, and often more the waste of war-making. But it takes time to decide to reject violence, to decide to reject a culture in which we might not even see at first look how it wages war, um, and not just kind of how we might interpret that piece of war, but also the war that happens within ourselves. But once we decide to reject this, then questions often of personal and common security rise up of how will we go about protection? How do we survive? What is the meaning of life? Um, and that is where this language of God as our rock, our refuge, our strength, um, I think completely changes. When we're acting as a nonviolent people and we say that we need God, right, this is a different kind of need um, than maybe someone who wants to wage war needs their violence and weapons. I want to try to connect this a little bit to something Aaron was talking about last week, uh, where he brought up the concept of the preferential option for the poor, which comes from Gustavo Gutierrez's work. Um, Gustavo Gutierrez wrote a book that released in 1971 titled Taking the Side of the Poor, Liberation Theology. And this was the start of kind of the era and the academic um, endeavor of liberation theology. And at the time of the book launch, um, Cardinal Mueller said that whoever wants to be a Christian is obliged to do something so that this earth becomes livable for all. And both authors said that liberation justice is a response to the conscience against abuses, an effort to put an end to injustice. And I bring up this concept because I think 
it is important for us to use this psalm, to use this image of God as a God who breaks weapons of war against uh, themselves and calls us to be still and to know God. I see this very much in tune with our work of justice, that it is twofold. Yes, of course, there's the aspect of peacemaking, um, of organizing together to break down the societal pieces of war, but there's also this really important internal work that has to be done. Um, When we talk about the preferential option for the poor, more or less it can be summed up as the preference being given uh, to the well-being of the poor and powerless of society, um, that God sides with um, or has a preference with the poor rather than righteous people. Now, I really appreciate um, that Brant brought up in this conversation last week, like, do we really need the language of preference or can we just talk about this as how God is? I think while we might assume that position and agree, uh, we also have to hold it in tangent with the reality that there are still many people out there who would say that is not who God is at all, Um, that God is saying in this passage that he is taking a side um, with American Christianity, American Christian nationalism, right? Um, is how I have seen sometimes this passage being used. Uh, Whereas our meditation leads us to a, I think, completely different place. Um, Gutierrez had kind of three bottom line principles. Um, First, that material poverty is never good, but an evil. Um, That it's not simply an occasion for charity but a degradating force that denigrates human dignity and ought to be opposed and rejected. Secondly, that poverty is not a result of fate or laziness, but it's due to structural injustices that privilege some while marginalizing others. He says poverty is not inevitable. Collectively, the poor can organize and facilitate social change. And third, poverty is a complex reality and it's not just limited to its economic dimension. To be poor is to be insignificant. Poverty means an early and unjust death. Now that line, poverty means an early and unjust death. Um, Of course, I think we see the poverty that is present in war. Um, We also see it uh, present in our cultural realities right now. Um, So then within this passage to also hold these words that God's desolations is the destruction of weapons, is the destruction even of culture that calls for war. How then does it change us as we read those words? Be still and know that I am God. Gutierrez goes on and says, uh, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he does not say blessed is poverty. For Gutierrez, standing in solidarity with the poor began to mean taking a stand against inhumane poverty. That we have been made by love and for love. Only by loving can we fulfill ourselves as persons. That is, by responding to the initiative taken by God's love. God's love for us is gratuitous. We do not merit it. It's a gift we receive before we exist. 
and a gift in view of which we have been created. It is so much more than just showing our concern for one another. At its heart, it contains a spiritual, mystical element that gives it depth and complexity. So when we read a passage like this, and we can read it in love rather than a place purely of fear, um, those words, be still and know that I am God, might take on a different meaning. The Hebrew word that's used here for the phrase be still is the word rapha, which really means to sink down, be feeble. Um, and I don't know about you, but whenever I'd heard that verse in the past, you know, I, I figured, well, it's more about a physical sense of stillness, of being quiet, of just meditating. Um, but I think as you read more into the context, it means to let yourself sink in, to let go of your rigidity, to allow yourself that space of softness or uh, a positive sense of weakness. Um, it also means kind of to, to slacken, uh, to, to cease. Um, it is so much more than just being quiet and still. Uh, someone uh, that I was reading a uh, commentary of provided this kind of secondary translation that they themselves offered up, not necessarily an academic one, but one I think that I find to be really beautiful and gets at the intent of why we utilize the space of meditation within our services um, and also often use this phrase. And their idea of this phrase, be still and know that I am God, translates to allow yourself to become completely weak and feeble, letting go of your need to control and your messed up ideas of how strong you are. And what you will discover is an intimate, up-close understanding of God that you would have never experienced otherwise. I don't know what it is about that, but it... It feels like it holds an important something. I remember a long time ago introducing the rounds of be still and know that I am God that occurs in Tuesday prayer. And I remember uh, someone, who I won't name here, uh, saying that they love this because they read it as it's saying to themselves that they hold God, that they are divine. Be still and know that I am God. So how do we know God? I think part of it is getting still and knowing ourselves. Be present to yourself and the divine, which in my opinion, that takes true courage. I also think it does uh, mean exploring this idea even further of how is God calling us into a space of nonviolence that doesn't just include a, a picture of war in a more um, traditional sense, but again, the wars within ourselves. Now, before I moved to California, I was a camp counselor and director for four years. I got really good at some absolutely random skills, including chalk drawing and setting up high adventure activities. 
but the one thing that was absolutely required was being really good at leading camp songs. Now, I won't jump into one in full right now, um, but we did have one called Squeegee Hunt. Uh, you might have heard this one as a bear hunt in your youth, but of course, this being a Christian camp for K-5th through fifth graders, it got changed. Um, anyways, it goes, uh, we're going on a squeegee hunt, we're going to find a big one, and I'm not afraid. Well, maybe just a little bit. It then leads through several obstacles, right? There's a tree you have to climb, a river to swim, a cave to go into to find this squeegee. Uh, now, right now, you're probably wondering, what the heck is she talking about? But hear me out. Um, the song continues for each obstacle. Well, we can't go under it. We can't go around it. We've got to go through it. All this is to say, most times we have to go into ourselves through the pain to know it, to know something about God. We have to be present in the moment to what is in front of us. And it's okay to admit that we might be a little scared. However, we're learning to act from a place of love rather than fear. The fear might be present, and it's not something that we have to completely get rid of because it is a source of information. It's helpful in some times. But is it what is leading you? Is it how you are making your decisions? I know for me, I have had moments of being terrified, of truly getting still, knowing myself, being open to knowing the fullness of the divine that looked oh so different from what I grew up believing. And while I don't know much, I can say that I do believe the divine in us calls us to get still, to find love, to experience peace, to call wars to end, to break weapons over our knee to be the side of the poor and the oppressed, and to know that in the midst of everything, God is also there. So thank you for going on this squeegee hunt for <laughs> some sense of uh, conversation and, and point of contact with this psalm that we often read from. Um, I hope that something of this has been helpful or maybe new, and I'm excited to get more into it together on Sunday. Um, but as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Amen.